Welcome to Anthropod. I'm Tarek Rahman. And I'm Catherine Sacco. Today we're bringing you the second in a series of three episodes on ethnography and design. This episode series builds on a conference of the same theme held last fall at the University of California, San Diego. Right. And today we'll be talking with uh, Keith Murphy, who is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, Keith is a social, cultural, and linguistic anthropologist whose research design and also led a workshop at the conference uh, based around an experimental concept he's been working with over the past few years called Ethnocerets, which is uh, just one of the fascinating intersections of these fields of ethnography and design. And we'll let Keith tell you a little bit more about Ethnocerets in his own words, but we also touched on a number of Um, interesting aspects of this conversation around ethnography and design. When we were talking with Keith, we talked to him a little bit about how he originally got interested in design and how that led to his own work on Swedish design. Um, We also talked a little bit about how the anthropology of design fits into uh, public anthropology. So let's start off with a brief clip from Keith's workshop and then launch into the interview. In my, for my own opinion, anthropology in particular is a quite conservative discipline, populated by a lot of non-conservative people, but it's a conservative discipline in terms of how it figures its engagement in the world. Um, and part of what the idea behind introducing charrette stuff into, into what we think, how we're thinking about ethnography is to kind of break, that, break apart some of the stale elements of normative ethnographic practice, um, to inject ideas of what does it mean to sort of foreground spe- speculative engagement right? rather than going out there and hanging out with people and talking to them like wh- what how, how how much and to what degree can we inject um, imaginative engagements or speculative engagements into the way we conceive of projects how do we provoke things generally we're not spo- we don't think of ethnographers as provocative as provoking things Thanks for joining us, Keith. No problem. So you've written a book called uh, Swedish Design, which is an ethnography of the political and cultural implications of Swedish design in Sweden. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about what you hoped this book would contribute to the field of anthropology of design? Sure. Um, What's interesting is that when I started this project, I started it in, I think, 2003. There was no coherent thing called design anthropology. Uh, A lot of my mentors were confused that anthropologists would want to study design um, from a, from an anthropological perspective, but uh, I thought it was interesting, and I, I had gone to Sweden intending to study hand gestures of architects and designers because that was my uh, my master's research was with architects. Uh, looking at architects, I was interested in hand gestures and architects hand gesture to use their hands when they were working uh, quite a bit. So it seemed like, oh, I should study architects if I want to see hand gestures in action. Uh, And I intended to carry that research out, carry on that research in Sweden. But when I got there, it turned out that like design was everywhere. Design was something that people talked about quite a bit. Design was something that was visible um, in everyday life in public space. And so that's the project shifted to a focus on hand gesture from a focus on hand gestures to a focus on design and its place in Swedish society, because it seemed so prominent there. And, um, 
the the research lasted about you know over the course of ten years or so, of really trying to understand what you know thinking about design. A lot of a lot of the way that we think about design, the way that design gets talked about is um, design gets taken for granted. What it is, it's about what is it about um, people design like people making things is it about things is it about processes is it about capitalism um and it's about all of those things and more um but no one had really ever actually in anthropology sat down to say what would it be like to study design as if design were a village or design were something that we were going to look at from an uh, from a from a distinctly anthropological point of view um, Sweden was a good case because design was so prominent there. It, um, if you, there's magazines everywhere dedicated to design, and, and along people get taught the history of design in schools more or less. Um, Swedish design, Scandinavian design, have international reputations, uh, and design is connected to the seemed to be when I first got there connected to this political discourse of. We design good things for taking care of people. And um, uh, that was the puzzle that I, you know, I, I, I joked that the first research question that I had was, what's up with that? Like, they're like, they basically, so everyone was talking about design as being in this particular register of care of um, everyday goods can take care of you. Um, and that didn't, as an American, that didn't resonate with me in the way that it seemed to resonate with the designers that I was talking to, but also the everyday Swedes that I was talking to. And that's what led me into, into the project. And as I kept talking to people and looking at things, I no one way of looking at design as a process, as about things, as about um, a particular history of design, as about form or form giving, none of those was adequate. So I needed to find a way to be able to talk about all of them at once. Um, and that's sort of what the book is. It's, a, it's a, an attempt to find a way to account for the form of design, the forms of design, processes of design, the history of design, the economics of design, the people of design in Sweden and how that relates to these other kinds of domains like politics and culture. So here at UCI, uh, you've done some work on what you call ethnocharettes, and that's something that we're um, really interested in learning a little more about. Um, maybe uh, we could start by you telling us um, what an ethnocharette is, as well as uh, maybe what it's not. Sure. Um, the I think about 2011 was when uh, George Marcus and I first came up with this. So the sort of backstory to it is that I, I'd done these studies of design. I'd work with architects, I'd work with furniture designers and interaction designers, um, always looking at design as sort of an object of inquiry. Um, I started working at UCI in 2008. George Marcus was here and he, in his earlier uh, position at Rice, had discovered an interest in design sort of a, I don't know if he would call it design thinking but like he the way that he describes it is that he would encounter students trained in architecture and design in his classes who seem to think and talk and work slightly differently than the anthropology students and um, 
that in ways that seem to be a product of their training, of maybe even of particular pedagogical practices that they underwent, right? And so, but he never really did anything with it. And then once I got here, we, over a couple of years, started having conversations of you know, his interest in thinking about ethnography alongside this interest in the way that design students think, my interest in design and experience working in design environments, we eventually in 2011 settled on just trying some things out, trying out some workshoppy type things. And I don't remember how the term ethno charette came to be. Um, it's not my favorite, but I, it, it is what we've been using, so we'll stick with it. Um, the idea of being a charette from uh, design point of view is a quick and kind of dirty workshoppy thing where you run through specific design activities, uh, designers, um, and maybe other stakeholders. There's some sort of design problem. There might be multiple stakeholders, and the designers uh, come together with the stakeholders to iterate different versions of solutions to the problem. Um, and sometimes this lasts a few hours and the goal being to come up with some prototype solution. This is in a design context. Um, and that could look like, in architecture, it could look like sketches, it could look like a 3D model, like a really basic 3D model um, or other sorts of things. But with a basic idea, or it could last, you know, I've been involved with charrettes in the design world that have lasted for several days. And then at the end, small groups, groups of three, four, five people present their various prototype solutions in to be critiqued by the by the, the organizers and the rest of the group. But yeah, the goal of these sorts of things in the design world is to kind of stimulate problem-solving thinking with the idea knowing that like this is going to be junky, like it's not supposed to solve the problem, but it's about it's about getting people talking to one another and working together to visualize and iterate on um, possible solutions. Now, the problem is, all right, well, we're going to do that like that's cool like that does interesting things how do we import that to ethnography where I mean, honestly we didn't we were just sort of like well we 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 see ethnography as somewhat stale as as a the way that we teach it and the way that we do it is very much like we we take field notes we do interviews we code the field notes we code the interviews um, very much based on participant observation, um, and we make other sorts, other ethnographic forms, methodological forms, maybe added on to that basic toolkit. Uh, but we wanted new ways to think about to get students to think about ethnography. You know, we weren't sure what that meant, right? We weren't sure where we would go with that, but that's how it started. Um, and the idea was, ah, let's take some of the stuff from design charrettes and just see what happens when we work with ethnographic material and to get students to start thinking in new ways. Um, could we, you know, not, again, not produce a new ethnographic method or some new ethnographic form, but some sort of prototype of something that we could, that we could, that students could use in their field work or for either doing or thinking about ethnographic, anthropological knowledge production. So could you tell us a little bit more about how the concept of ethnostorettes and how the ways that you actually ran your ethnostorettes developed from um, when you initially started doing that until some of the most recent iterations? So we started with, mostly because we weren't really 
sure what to do. We started with the most canonical ethnographic form, which is an ethnography, so a book, a published book. And that was partly because um, we didn't know what else to do. Um, we wanted to try something, and that seemed like a good idea. Um, and uh, we thought that people would, if we asked students to provide us your field notes or other kinds of ethnographic data that they would get really possessive. I, I personally would not want to be sharing my field notes in, in a public way like this, so I wasn't going to do that right. So we started with a book. We started with Bob DeJarle's um, Shelter Blues, which was an amazing ethnography. And the idea was, okay, break, break our students into groups. If you can, if you can, you know, we gave them some specific criteria, but like, take this book and go through it and just find what you find interesting in it. Anything that stick, they'd already read it, hopefully. Um, but take anything that you can find in here, ideas, ethnographic detail, theoretical frameworks that he's using, put them on post-it notes, and the thing that you find interesting, that doesn't matter why or how, write them down and stick them on the wall. Um, and the idea was that this was a way to sort of deconstruct the form of the book and atomized into its basic components, theory, or generally because it's stuck on a little tiny post-it note, some term that indexes a wider theoretical apparatus. Details, ethnographic details, or other authors they're citing, whatever, whatever they, whatever part of the process was to get people to figure out what what their attention turned to when consuming in a new consuming the ethnography in a new way, and then they were to rearrange. You know, they once they've done that, then they were to kind of discuss it and come up with you know the things of the. They had a wall full of post-it notes. On this wall full of post-it notes, what do you as a group find the most compelling sets? So make arrangements out of these things. Um, you know, and again. It doesn't matter what the criteria are. You determine the criteria as you go. Make arrangements of this stuff collaboratively. And then the third, the, the, what they had to do finally was produce a Pecha Kucha, which is a slideshow. 20 slides, 20 seconds for each slide automatically advances each 20 seconds. And on that, they were to present some new version of the ethnography that they had just read um, based not on the book itself, but on the process that they had gone through. Uh, this didn't work very well. It worked okay. It worked. It worked. It worked to some extent. There were a lot of problems. We we could have been clear, clearer in what we wanted, but our experimental excitement of sort of like let's see what happens sort of um, wasn't wasn't strong enough guidance for 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 people. Um, and I get that. And I um, uh, we fixed that later on. And people are really resistant to pechacuchas. I don't know if you've ever done a pechacucha before. Um, but they can be super fun or like terrifying. So um, I think most people found them terrifying. Uh, so because you don't, you, you lose control of the, of, the, of the timing and what gets said. And so this comes from a design world, but anthropologists haven't seemed to have adopted it yet. And so that one went well. Then we did another iteration of that, sort of tweaking some of the details. But over time we realized that ethnographies are too authoritative, right? And people have a really hard time breaking them apart because it seems like there's you're doing a little bit of disservice or abuse to the author and the author's intent. Um, so people had a really hard time 
reimagining an ethnographic thing that's from a book that's representing an empirical reality, right? So um, lately we've been thinking in terms of borrowing from the idea of design fictions where you create sort of fiction worlds where, with designed elements of it that can then become um, stimulus for thinking about actual design processes in the here and now. Uh, we're playing with concepts of ethnographic fictions, um, not like an ethnographic novel, although that's a version, but like producing ethnographic fictions as a way of thinking about, getting students to think about how they can engage in the world once they go out into the field, how they can engage in the world. We're still in the process of thinking about that. And ethnographic fiction is a, seems like a contradiction, right? Because we don't want to fictionalize ethnography, but that's why it would be part of this first stage and not when you're actually doing field work. We've done a bunch of different iterations from the books. Our, la our, our last version um, was working with photographic material um, and trying to get people to think about use different photographic material that they collected from people out in the world and from stock photography, uh, combine that together to create pamphlets. The next version that we will do, we've done that. So they've created pamphlets that are supposed to stimulate people's thoughts in the world. We've never, haven't circulated them yet, but that's the next version we will do. We'll circulate things in the world to kind of bring, get, get people to interact with these objects outside of the ethnocharette context to see what happens. A lot of these uh, experiments that you've done with ethnocharettes uh, involve collaboration, and we were hoping you could speak a little bit to the importance of collaboration um, in ethnocharette. So I think I should say that our goals for these are not lofty, right? Like a lot of, a lot of what we're trying to do is simply to do things different than they're normally done, both in certainly within our own PhD program, but in probably and certainly the one that I went through at UCLA and in most cultural linguistic anthropology programs. Archaeologists are much better at collaboration than linguistic anthropologists or cultural, uh, cultural anthropologists. Um, and so simply getting people to sort of talk to each other in different ways than they normally do is itself, a, from our point of view, a worthy goal, right? So part of, the, part of our structuring of, of these events has been precisely to get people to um, not just sit at a table and talk about ideas together, but to actually stand up and look each other in the eye, like very kind of basic things, look each other in the eye um, and ask each other dumb questions um, and come to kind of dumb solutions but for things that could then, you know, be be taken quite seriously down the line, right? We we create these spaces of of activity that are um, not always one hundred percent fun, but kind of fun. I, I when I run it, I want it to be people to have a good time and to interact with one another in uh, in in as fun a way as possible. But rather than the stakes being about who understands Heidegger better than somebody else? I mean it when I say, you know, there. You know, we ask dumb questions like, "What does? What do we mean by weirdo fears?" Right? Where that's something that came out in one of the, the, the post-it note that I still have somewhere that says, I think it says "weirdo fears," and I don't know where, I don't know what it refers to or who wrote it, but like 
presumably that was something that came out of the, com of the of the conversations that were coming on, right? And that was kind of, you know, that's a dumb thing, but maybe talking about that gets people to interact differently um, than they're used to. So much of graduate training is structured according to getting graduate students to think about their um, research projects is about you know work individual students working with faculty members um, they're working with a committee but they usually the conversations are usually happening one on one maybe they talk to each other maybe graduate students talk to each other at certain times about their projects but they're you know a lot of the time it's like reading a book it's a lonely process and uh, so there's a lot of interaction that's going on but a lot of it is sort of one on one lots of singular one on one interactions stuff together over time so the idea of building something together or thinking through a problem together um, and not relying on the traditional way of simply talking about texts as a way to interact with one another was important for us well I think I'll speak for George here I think both of us are ambivalent about the term collaboration um, because it seems to capture a lot of different kinds of things um, but it also sort of, you know, if you say, oh, I'm, you know, we're, we're working in a collaboration, then people say, oh, that's, you know, we, it, collaboration gets valorized in a particular kind of way. And it's sort of like, oh, great, collaboration. And then the conversation sort of stops because collaboration is happening. And I think that we need to sort of think through and talk about the difficulties of collaboration. Collaboration is really hard and it's painful sometimes. And it can be counterproductive in all sorts of ways, right? And sometimes in the ethno charrette, um, that gets that has revealed itself over the years that we've been doing these things the, the pros and cons of collaboration and the more that we think about the cons of collaboration we tweak the procedures that we do and we try to address it to make it as productive as possible to get people working together to produce something right and again the something changes from ethno charrette to ethno charrette um, but the goal the goal isn't a isn't so much the product, isn't the thing that gets produced, but the fact that we're working together on this problem. So we wanted to shift gears now, sort of away from ethno charrettes towards broader questions about design and anthropology, um, which is a an intersection, you know, those two things can come together in different ways. And it seems like you've been involved in that intersection of design and anthropology in a lot of these different ways. So your books, you design, that's of an ethnography of design, right? Um, ethno charrettes are in some ways bringing design into um, anthropology. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how these two separate configurations of anthropology of design and then you know, design for anthropology, how do those intersect? How do they come together? In a weird way, the my interest in studying design like being an anthropologist who goes to a field site that is heavily invested in design and studying that like I would study some, any other situation, that part of me almost feels a little bit different, like separate from the part of me that's interested in design, bringing design into anthropology in one way or another. And there's a couple of reasons for that, I think. One, I t when it comes to studying design from an anthropological perspective, I take what feels or I try to take what feels like a very, like, a very kind of agnostic perspective. Like I was saying before, 
I think we talk about, we often talk about design. A lot of people talk about design as if we know what it is, but I don't think that we do yet. I think that there's design is really, really, really complicated um, and in super interesting ways. And we're just scratching the surface of understanding design as a, as a way of engaging uh, for humans to engage in a world of other humans. Um, and so that I take an agnostic perspective towards design with that, because I just want to sort of try and figure out what, what's going on with design. But I'm also quite skeptical of design. I'm skeptical of the claims of design. I'm skeptical of the, the really dominant framing of design as being problem, a problem-solving, a uh, tool for problem-solving. There's a, what I think of as a, a, we could approach design from a credulous perspective, meaning that we sort of we, 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 we buy into what design is offering us um, relatively uncritically. Um, or a less credulous perspective where we're a little bit more skeptical of the claims of design. Um, that, you know, and that could be everything from design pedagogical practices to, you know, design is going to save the world. So when I borrow, in doing Ethnocharettes with George and other activities that I've been involved in, I, um, I don't take an agnostic perspective. I'm taking a kind of credulous perspective of like, no, 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 design pedagogy is, it can help anthropology but at the same time the flip side of that is I'm actually quite skeptical of design um, pedagogy in some ways um, or design the idea that design practices do like design thinking is something I'm quite skeptical of in some ways so this is me personally I'm actually quite ambivalent about it's something that I think about a lot I'm ambivalent with relation this this uncomfortable joining of design and anthropology I'm ambivalent about and so I just it's one way that I've handled it is kind of almost separating them in my head about 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 that even though I've written stuff that brings them together um, but that become that's the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is why 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 now and why design and anthropology why are they coming together in this particular these new configurations it's been for several decades Anthropology has been useful to design in, in corporate environments and even in government nonprofit kinds of environments. Uh, you find ethnography being used to enhance design practices and processes, processes. But that's taking on new forms now, partly as more anthropologists end up working outside of academia in for companies, for governments, for other nonprofit organizations. Uh, so you just see anthropology and anthropological inclinations and ideas spreading in ways that I think are mostly good. But then the stuff that George and I have been doing and that others around the world have been doing similar sorts of exercises. Maybe we are also seduced by the power of design, what the, the supposed power of design to solve problems, and we feel like, oh, let's reinvent ethnography. Anthropology was developed in a particular kind of world, um, and the methods were developed with relation to studying humans in a particular kind of way. And we largely don't do that anymore. Um, we, we study different configurations of humans and non-humans. Um, we work on a different time scale. We use different kinds of technologies in our everyday lives. And yet the basic toolkit of anthropology is a notebook, a pencil and pen, a recorder, 
um, you know, we, we work in field notes, things like that. Oh, there's all sorts of other stuff going on in there. Of course, lots of people do different things. I use video in, in my in my own work uh, quite heavily, but in general, that's still considered. The, we're using old methods for new kinds of studies, right? And so maybe design is a way to help us overcome that to solve this perceived problem of ethnography as it's normatively conceived, not fitting the world that anthropologists study nowadays. Do you feel that this intersection between um, design and ethnography can contribute to public anthropology? And do you feel that that's an especially important thing to do um, right now, especially considering the uh, current political climate? I think that anthropology, I'm, I'm, I personally am very deeply invested in finding ways to make anthropology, if I may use the dreaded R word, relevant to audiences outside of academia outside of, and within academia outside of the social sciences. Um, lots of work, lots of good work in that vein is going on, um, but I think a lot of work needs to continue. And I'm a, I am an offender. Um, I, I write in a, like a lot of the issues have to do, I think, with the way that we write, um, um, that like so many awesome people do anthropology and who can communicate really clearly um, in certain respects, but then we don't um, in other respects, right? So that, that's something that personally, one of the things that I'm trying to focus on now is to write in a way that, to practice more writing in a way that is, that is theoretically engaged, but that is not super off-putting to people who might, not, who might be intimidated by theory. Because I think one of the things that we can offer as anthropologists is theory. Um, because I think theory has a, a, a lot of explanatory power and a lot of um, persuasive power, a lot of political power, but not on its own. It needs to be it needs to be activated in particular ways by people, and it needs to be done carefully. Um, and a lot of, from my point of view, a lot of that problem of how to how to get us to activate theory in ways that can help the public has to do with writing. It's a, and perhaps it's just my training as a linguistic anthropologist to think that it boils down to a language issue, but it boils down to a language issue for me in some ways. So that's that's one thing. Now, um, I also think that another downside to the way that we currently operate in terms of enhancing our public a public engagement mission is that we want to complicate everything, um, which is good. That we should be complicating things, but we need to find the right way of complicating things that are still understandable. Like don't complicate to the point of, well, that's too difficult to explain or something, right? Like we need to find a way to complicate and explain at the same time. Um, and that's hard. It's really hard to do that. Um, uh, because part of what a public anthropology, on a very practical level, part of what a public anthropology needs is an anthropology um, that isn't complicated. <laughs> um, and so... A complicating, a complication as a as a practice, is is not the same as expressing research um, as a practice, right? So you can have complicating as a practice that isn't complicated in its form, uh, but it takes work to to do that.
I think design anthropology can be one avenue through which a public, a, a new kind of public anthropology can emerge, but I don't think that it is easy. Um, I don't think that, you know, this comes again from my skepticism of the power of design to solve problems. I don't want us to think that design anthropology will be a, a magic bullet of some sort, or the design introduction to anthropology will somehow be a magic bullet that can help us, that can help anthropology be better at its public mission. I think that it is one of many, many different avenues. I think that the, the work that the Society for Linguistic Anthropology has been doing on language and social justice is a really good model for public engagement with anthropology because it's very targeted about very specific kinds of issues and it's it, it's attempted to be presented in a way that's clear and resonates with people outside of the social sciences so design anthropology in some form could do that um, could do something similar um, by appealing to a lot of the things that design appeals to to the the, the, the general a general public about but as with anything, it's going to take a lot of concentrated effort that I'm certainly thinking about. I don't know exactly how to do it yet. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. It's been awesome talking to you guys. You've been listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. We want to thank Professor Keith Murphy for speaking with us, as well as the UC Collaboratory for Ethnography and Design for permission to record at the conference. And finally, Liliana Gill, the executive producer of this episode, who provided us with some invaluable feedback. If you missed the first episode in this series, you can find it in the Anthropod archives. And be sure to keep an eye out for our next episode, featuring an interview with Lily Arani, Assistant Professor of Communication and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego. This episode of Anthropod was produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can also find us at cultanth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H dot org. There on the website, you can find out more about this series on ethnography and design and all of our previous episodes, as well as the journal Cultural Anthropology. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at Cult Anth. I'm Tariq Rahman. And I'm Catherine Sacco. Thanks for listening.